This is the 2018 Reseda Spring Study Day. Our speaking brothers, Brother Con Mitzos of Australia. The overall theme for the weekend is Mary, the Handmaid of the Lord. This is class number three, entitled, I Must Be About My Father's Business, and it's based on Luke chapter 2. Brother Con. Thank you, Brother Tony, and uh, brothers and sisters and young people. Um, I do appreciate that uh, it's a big day, uh, but I am very impressed with how alert and attentive you are. I haven't noticed anyone going to sleep, so um, I'm actually impressed because it's uh, hard to fall asleep when you're speaking, but um, it is easy to fall asleep when you're listening, and uh, I'm uh, hoping that I can keep you awake and uh, um, we can just get through the... uh, third session and then we can enjoy some um, time to chat over lunch and that's something that has been uh, difficult. I know some of you have tried to come and talk to me. I don't want to be unsocial. I love talking. I love people. It's one of my weaknesses. I talk too much. So, But I'm looking forward to a chance over lunch just to have some conversations because they are so meaningful in connecting and uh, I've actually learnt some pretty amazing things just by the conversations I've had in just hearing testimonies of faith from people who've shared their own stories with me. And uh, it's very touching when you talk to brothers and sisters you've never met before and see that the same God that has worked in your life is the same God that is evidently working in theirs. And it's a beautiful thing. It just makes us appreciate how magnanimous and how universal God is. And over so many ages, he has worked. We are no different than those that we read of in the scriptures. God is working with us in the same way, for the same reason. And he says, have a read of the way in which I've worked in the lives of people in the past so that you're ready because I'm going to work with you in the same way for the same reason. And it's lovely to hear people who have connected with God, seen God in their lives, and are on that journey of faith. So just so that you appreciate why I said that the sword that Simeon spoke to Mary about were words that were going to be directed to Mary by the Lord Jesus Christ, I just want to want you to come to Isaiah 49. Here's one of the references um, where Isaiah speaks of one of the um, aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his first verse, Isaiah 49, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. Yahweh hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. So undoubtedly we're reading about the Lord Jesus Christ and his birth of Mary. Mary is prophesied of here in verse 1 of Isaiah 49. And verse 2, He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hath hid me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. And there's the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. His humanity in verse 1, his divinity in verse 2. And here he is as the word made flesh because the words that are going to come out of his mouth are going to be like a sharp sword. And we alluded, I think, in uh, one of today's session, sessions to Hebrews chapter 4. Um, maybe we can come there now. And you know these words very well. Yes, we did. I think we opened um, alluding to Hebrews 4 and verse 12. 
<clears throat> Sister Wendy made me a nice cup of tea. Thank you. And verse 12, for the word of God, and remember, the word of God is one of the titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the word made flesh, is quick, alive, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, because it pierces, the word that Simeon used, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. So it separates and divides the fleshly human reasoning and the spirit reasoning because we know those two are in a state of conflict. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 4, doesn't he? Talks about the, the, law, of, uh, the law of the flesh, the mind of the flesh and the law and the, the mind of the spirit. That they're, they're contrary one to another. They're at enmity. And the sword of Yahweh through his word helps us to cut those apart and to distinguish the difference between the soulish and the spiritual. But it gets even further, deeper into the joints and the marrow. Unseen, joints and marrow are unseen but perform vital parts in the operation of the body, uh, both in terms of movement with the joints and the marrow, which is critical in the formation of uh, blood cells and it's important for us to understand that as a metaphor they describe the penetration into the inner recesses of our thought processes that happens when we open the scriptures because it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart and those things cannot be seen sometimes even by us or by people but God sees those. And when we allow the scriptures to penetrate into our mind, it helps us to actually assess our own thinking and our own intents or motivations, which are the substratum or the reason for why we say things and do things. We can't do that without the word of God. Just come to Jeremiah and what does Jeremiah say? Keep a finger in Hebrews uh, 4 because we'll come back there shortly. But just in this context, just be mindful of the words that Jeremiah spoke in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. He describes the challenge that we have. And the challenge we have is that our heart or our mind is a faulty mechanism. And Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, we read, The heart is deceitful. But Jeremiah didn't just say the heart is deceitful, did he? Jeremiah said the heart is the most deceitful thing ever. Above all things. So if you rely on your own thinking, if you hear people say, this is what I think, Naturally speaking, they are deceiving themselves. But not only is our heart faulty because it deceives us into thinking that right is wrong and wrong is right, it is also desperately wicked. That is, it is prone to sin. So this is our natural mind. And it is impossible for us to do anything about that. The only cure is to have the Word of God enter into our mind, to create a different mind. It's 
It's called the mind of the spirit. It's educated by scriptural principles. It's the word of God that engineers a complete different mind within our brain, which is evidenced by conflict. And that's why Paul in Romans 7 describes the mental anguish that he had because he had these two laws battling for supremacy and ascendancy in his thinking. And he ends up lamenting the fact that the things that he wanted to do, he never ended up doing. And the things that he didn't want to do, he found himself doing. I find then a law within my members. And he knows that he's under the law of the sentence of sin and death. But he thanks God that God has provided a cure, a solution. So what is the solution? Verse 10, I, Yahweh, search the heart. I try the reins. The reins are the kidneys and by... uh, by metaphor, they describe the conscience, the deep-seated values that we have. So Yahweh searches the heart, he tries the conscience, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So Yahweh analyzes us and he rewards us according to our ways, that is our direction, our determination. Paul says, with the mind I want to serve the law of Christ. So that's his mind, that's his will, his, his determination. God re- rewards us if we have set our face and our mind in the right direction and according to the fruit of our doings. Because God knows sometimes with the best of intentions we fail, but at least God knows we are aiming for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So... It is important that that word is read and heard because otherwise we will rely on our own thinking and that is dangerous. It's fraught with danger. Now, I just want you to come back to Hebrews chapter um, 4 because we know the words of Simeon to Mary were that a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. A lot of people's thoughts were going to be exposed as the Lord Jesus Christ uttered his word. And then Paul says in verse 13 of Hebrews 4, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So God sees us, sees through us, sees right into our hearts. And one of the challenges we have when we read the gospel records of the Lord Jesus Christ is sometimes we don't know why he answered people in the way he did or treated them in the way that he did. The reason why he did was because he was actually answering what they were thinking, not what they were saying. He was answering what they were actually conceiving in their minds, their ideas, their mind, their conscience. That's what he was addressing. Very often we're not used to that because we just simply think that we can just say something and that reflects what we want people to think about us, not what we really are because we're not used to being honest. And Paul says, God sees through the things that we might put up as a veneer We want people to know when we come into the divine space and come face to face with God through his word or people that did with the Lord Jesus Christ, everything is naked and open. 
So we can't say at the judgment seat, and remember there's a, a scripture that says, don't say to the angel in that day it was an error because the angel's going to know you're lying. So let's be careful that we are honest with ourselves because we're not always terribly honest. We think to ourselves, okay, so I've got to calculate what I'm going to say because if I say the truth, he's going to react in this way and I don't want him to react in this way. So therefore, if I just say this, it's actually true, might not be the whole truth. If I just say this, and we've crafted what we want to say or what we do based on the outcome that we want, it doesn't work with God. We have to start being honest and dealing with the reality because that's what God sees. And that's what Jesus addresses in people's lives. If you just come back to John chapter 1, and I, um, I, you, you, you probably get to know me after a while. I um, jump all over the place and then I have to go back to my notes and work out where I am. But it doesn't matter. If you just go to John chapter 2, at the end of John chapter 2, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, we read, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which Jesus did. Now, if you just, if you just read that verse only, you would say, whoa, that is fantastic. That is exactly what Jesus would want, wouldn't he? They see his miracles and they believe in him. Isn't that what it's all about? And John ends up his gospel, as we know, saying all of these things that Jesus did was so that people could believe that he's the son of God and believing, having life in his name. But verse 24 starts with the word, but. These were people that believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But, John records, Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He didn't need somebody to give him an introduction to a person he was just meeting for the first time. He knew that person. He could analyse their thinking. He could understand their past just by a glance. He saw through people. He was Hebrews 4 verse, verse 12 and 13 embodied in human form. And that Mary was going to find challenging. And so were a lot of people going to find challenging. Jesus did not commit himself to people that believed in his name because he knew that that belief was not true to who they really were. He looked at their hearts. He looked at their ways and their doings. He did not commit. Now, what is a relationship? A relationship is a commitment from both parties. Relationships are not a one-way street. Otherwise, it's not a relationship. It's one person chasing a relationship with another. A relationship is when both people commit. Here were people that appeared to be committed to Jesus. Jesus did not commit himself to them. So if we think we want a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's got to be a two-way street. And he will only commit to us if we are genuine and honest in our loyalty to him. Otherwise, he's going to say, depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. We prophesied in thy name. In thy name did many wonderful works. These people believed in his name. Sorry. You got the wrong person. It wasn't me you had a relationship with me. You had a relationship with someone that was the figment of your imagination that you conjured up, not the real me. And it is important for us to understand that these 
words that Jesus addressed to Mary were the sword piercings that Simeon spoke to Mary about that was going to be a part of her development. And the development is expressed in these words in the Apostle Paul's fifth chapter of his second letter. If you just come back, uh, come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, here is what the sword thrusts were designed to do. Of course, these sword thrusts were specific to Mary. Jesus uttered many things to many people and those things were designed for the same outcome. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, Concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of Christ, verse 14, constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we were all dead, and that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves or do what they want to do or decide how to live their lives, but to live for him and unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ as a man after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. And Mary was a person who knew the human Christ, the Christ in the flesh. That was the natural relationship. But she had to transcend, as they all had to transcend, to see the new Christ. Because if any man be in Christ, he's part of a new creation, a spiritual creation. Old things are passed away and behold, all things become new. And Emmanuel, all things are of God who has reconciled to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Mary had to understand Jesus as part of the new covenant, the spiritual, the immortal, the divine Christ, not just the Christ after the flesh. And one of the challenges that all of the people had was it was easy on the surface to just see Jesus as a good man, as a prophet, maybe greater than a prophet, but to see him as the son of God and to understand what that entailed was marred sadly because of their false expectation of what they thought the Messiah would come to do. They all, and Mary, believed that the Messiah that the prophets spoke of was a Messiah that was going to save them from their enemies and establish the kingdom. They had not read their scriptures properly. They had not understood the mission of Messiah. They had not understood, as Simeon understood, the destiny of his first advent and that he would be a sign spoken against because his first advent, he would come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Well, none of the Israelites thought that they were in need of redemption from sin. They saw enemy, the enemy is Rome. They were the Gentile uh, overlords of God's heritage and they knew that the Gentiles had no place having uh, custody over God's land and God's people. And they knew that Messiah was going to come and deal with that issue and save and elevate the nation of Israel. Sadly, they did not understand. They were like Cain. And Cain's offering was about giving God what spoke about resurrection, the fruit of the ground. What was missing out of Cain's offering was a lamb because he didn't acknowledge 
that he was a sinner in need of the forgiveness of sins. Abel understood that. And so here is a nation who, like Cain, were false worshippers because they didn't believe the truth. They didn't understand human nature and their real need. Abel understood that. He understood the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve concerning the seed, the promised seed who would destroy the serpent and redeem his people from the consequences that Adam and Eve's sin had brought into the world. See, that's the difference. And their false understanding and their false expectation led them to disaster. And that's why it's important for us to know the Scriptures because it's the basis upon which we can understand our relationship with the Father and be reconciled to him truly in Jesus Christ. So let's uh, move now to Luke chapter 2 and start our um, third session. Now, we know the visit of the... Um, um, oh, actually, sorry, can you just come back to Mark chapter, so Matthew chapter 2, I beg your pardon, just to deal very briefly with the visit of the wise men from the east before we go back to Luke's gospel. And um, I'm just going to change slides... and the visit of the wise men. Now, we don't have to go into this in great detail because this relates, um, obviously, more to the Lord Jesus Christ, but obviously it involves Mary and Joseph, and it would have been an amazing thing for them to be visited. Oh, okay, I've just now interrupted the sequence. Um, Do we need to scroll through the source? Okay. You're a legend, Brother Dave. That's right, we, we got the laptop and the uh, data projector connected. Um, Just see if I can just escape out of this. Maybe your data projector doesn't like Greeks. Refusing to speak to a Greek. That's okay. It's not important. You sure? Yep. You're not going to miss much by... The slides are only just um, headings so that we know uh, generally uh, where we are. That's okay. Okay, so um, the visit of the wise men. We, we know the history uh, and, of course, we, uh, we appreciate the work of Daniel in Babylon because these men obviously 
um, heard of the prophecies of Daniel concerning Messiah, and we're not going to go into um, the detail of uh, particularly um, Daniel chapter 9, but the Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Prophecy expected his listeners to actually know about the prophecy of Daniel. Remember he spoke about the abomination of desolation. When you see it in the holy place, flee to the mountains. That was a matter of life and death for that generation, to actually know the prophecy of Daniel concerning the events of AD 70. They were not only prophesied in Daniel 9, but also in Deuteronomy 28, when Moses exhorted the generation that was coming into the promised land of the dangers of the curse that God would bring upon them if they failed to heed the lesson of the previous generation. So that was Bible prophecy. And Daniel chapter 9 also speaks about the desolation of the sanctuary. And it's important for us to appreciate that these prophecies are actually, we, we are expected to at least know them. Now here was wise men in Babylon who had listened to the prophecies of Daniel and for generations had passed the message of Daniel's prophecy concerning Messiah the the Prince from generation to generation to generation to generation and were in expectation of the birth of Messiah based on uh, uh, Daniel's um, 70-week prophecy. I find that absolutely amazing. They come to a nation who is totally, largely ignorant of the fact that Messiah is going to be born and it takes men from the east to come over to pay homage to the king of the Jews. What an amazing thing. What an indictment against the nation. Just like the indictment of the Lord Jesus Christ who was pronounced innocent by Pilate, by Pilate and acknowledged to be the king of the Jews by Pilate who put it on a sign and placarded on the cross who the priests tried to get changed, which the priests tried to get changed. Don't say he's the king of the Jews. Say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate says, what I have written I have written. What an indictment on God's people that the saviour of the Jews, the king of the Jews came and Gentiles at his birth and a Gentile at his death acknowledged that he was the king of the Jews, Romans and Babylonians. And it's the sad reality, brothers and sisters, of the fact that we can become complacent like the Jews became complacent. We're Christadelphians, we have the truth. We are the people. We can become very complacent and take for granted the blessings that are given to us. And God can sometimes call people um, out from the outside and sometimes embarrass us because of their devotion to the truth and their, their thirst for the scriptures. And we think, oh my goodness, oh, I better get stuck into the Bible because look at brother so-and-so. He just, you know, two years in the truth and he's studying the scriptures like you wouldn't believe. And these uh, men, sadly, uh, as an indictment of the nation of Israel, showed greater faithfulness to the word of God and expectation of Messiah than many in Israel. So, of course, when they came to Joseph and Mary, uh, as we know, uh, we know the story, so I'm not going to go into the story, but uh, we read in verse 11, guided by the star, and those of you who are interested, you'll see, um, again, in Balaam's prophecy in Numbers Um, Numbers chapter 24, uh, a prophecy concerning the star of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they followed that star and it brought them to the house, verse 11. And when they were come to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. If you just um, have a look at Isaiah chapter 60... 
Here's a prophecy that was fulfilled in the visit of the wise men. Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for thy light is come. The glory of Yahweh is risen upon thee. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But Yahweh shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And Gentiles shall come to thy light and and kings to the brightness of thy rising. And uh, just come down to verse 6. They shall bring gold at the end of verse 6 and incense and they shall show forth the praises of Yahweh. Isaiah chapter 60. Did I say the wrong chapter? Yep, Isaiah chapter 60. And here's a prophecy that was fulfilled by these, um, these Gentiles who had come to the light of the uh, glory of God in the person of uh, Jesus Christ as a young child. Well, we know the, um, the record of, um, of Herod and his attempt to try and use this as an opportunity to identify and exterminate a rival to the throne. And we, knew the, we know the tragic outcome uh, of this for the inhabitants of the region and uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah was fulfilled with the massacre of Herod, a butcher who tried to um, exterminate a rival to the throne as he uh, realised that he was duped or deceived by the, um, the uh, wise men who asked to go and find the child and come and tell him again. Of course, they were directed by the angel uh, to leave without going back to Herod, leave another way so they couldn't be identified. But of course, as we know, tragically... A lot of young children lost their lives and we might wonder at why God would allow such, uh, such a, a massacre to occur. You will remember that a similar massacre occurred when Pharaoh tried to destroy uh, the children in the days when Moses was born, the infants, the male infants, in order to prevent the uprising of the nation of Israel. Why does God allow these things? And uh, if any of you have... Um, Uh, done any first principles or lectures on why does the God of love allow suffering, you will know that sometimes the inverted commas Christian view of God is that he's a loving God and he's benevolent and he never does anything that's, you know, um, cruel or anything that's barbaric or anything that is, and you know, to the point where some of the uh, animal activists find it repulsive to think that God instituted animal sacrifices so you can actually have a wrong picture of God that is not based on the scriptures if you just have your own definition of what is good and then think to yourself, well, my definition of good is the God that I have now fabricated in the figment of my imagination and yet you come to challenges like this. Why would God allow this to happen? And the same as uh, all of the judgments that have been poured out by God, which I personally believe are always discriminatory and I believe that in the words of um, Job who said shall not the Lord of all the earth do right we're not to question why God allowed a massacre like this to happen he could have prevented it but he allowed it to happen and sadly all of the judgments that have ever fallen on the nation of Israel have been the subject of prophecy Just read Deuteronomy 28 and you'll see what Moses said would befall the nation if they turned their back on God. When we read in Isaiah 60 that the nation was in darkness, 
that means the nation was in spiritual darkness. And that spiritual darkness needed to be exposed for what it was. And how can you expose all of the evil and the apostasy in the darkness? You shine the light on it so it can all be exposed and give people a chance to look at themselves and to change. And that's really what the coming of Jesus Christ did. And many families suffered this tragic loss as a result of God allowing this to happen as a lesson that if they forsook God, they needed only to turn to the scriptures and see what God had said would be the consequences. Because as we sow, so shall we also reap. And we might think, well, why is God taking this out on children? They wouldn't have had an opportunity of growing up in the truth. We can't question that either. Because God in his foreknowledge is able to know what is the future. But even so, what did, what did um, Yahweh tell Moses or the Yahweh angel? Forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. Yes. But visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So as parents, we have a duty and a responsibility for the sake of our children. And if we haven't understood the lesson of tragedies that have happened in the nation of Israel, our children may suffer the consequences of our folly. Because that's the God of the scriptures. That's the God of the universe. That's the real God. And he is a fearful and terrible God. And it is important for us to take him seriously. So uh, we know that um, Joseph and Mary were sent uh, to Egypt uh, in order to flee the uh, determination of Herod to murder the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you come to Hosea chapter 11, you'll see that this also was part of the hand of providence that worked in order to fulfill a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might not have understood this prophecy to have relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, but obviously, as Matthew records it, it was uh, definitely a fulfilment of this, uh, this prophecy. When Israel was a child, Hosea 11 and verse 1, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And there's, there's the uh, prophecy concerning why the Lord Jesus Christ had to go into Egypt so that that prophecy would be fulfilled. And if Joseph and Mary, who were students of the scriptures, went back to this scripture, uh, they would have understood the love that Yahweh had for this child and he would be protected and he would be cared for uh, by his father who loved him. Just come to Psalm 22. Here's another scripture that was fulfilled in this incident of the deliverance of Jesus from Herod. Psalm 22 and verse 9. We know that this is a, a messianic psalm concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. Now, you see in the margin, the word didst make me, the phrase didst make me hope in the Hebrew, sorry, yes, in the Hebrew is keepest me in safety. Now, 
Jesus must have been um, under two years of age or around that age. And here he is still being nursed by his mother and he's kept in safety. This verse is fulfilled in the circumstances of the flight to Egypt. And so our Lord Jesus Christ was brought out of Egypt and um, so was fulfilled this prophecy also from Psalm 22. We'll, um, we'll leave um, Jeremiah 31 and the voice of um, Rachel weeping for her children just because of time. And um, come across now to Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. Well, let's just read verse 39 for context. When they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord... And we spoke about that in our last session, that the, um, that the um, law-abiding aspect of uh, Joseph and Mary is emphasised five times in this section of Scripture. They returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And of course, we've inserted Matthew chapter 2, the record of the flight to Egypt, and then we come to verse 40. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Those of you who um, have studied um, the life of Christ will uh, automatically go to Isaiah 11 in their minds and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ um, and his uh, quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh um, as a result of his divine instruction. And you can imagine that that would have made him a unique child for Mary to raise. If you uh, just come back to, and again, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that reference, so we're not going to go to Isaiah 11, but maybe just Isaiah 50, because Isaiah 11 speaks about the work of the father in raising his son and educating his son. Here's another reference that we can put together with Isaiah 11 and verse 1 to 3. Isaiah 50 and verse 4. Adonai Yahweh hath given me the tongue of the learned... So he was educated, and the word learned there in the Hebrew is the word disciple. So, you know, Jesus called disciples to follow him and to learn from him. Well, he was a disciple of his fathers. So he was first a disciple before he made disciples. And his education came from uh, his heavenly father, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth my ear to hear as the learned. And you know, in this, and there are a number of scriptures we can go to, Psalm 119 is a beautiful psalm, which actually is a psalm of the education of the Son of God by his Father. That must have been something unique. As the Father spoke to his Son from a young age, and woke him morning by morning and spoke in his ear as he educated him. And Joseph and Mary would come to understand that God was speaking to his son directly apart from their instruction as his mother and his guardian. And um, as I said, I don't like embellishing the record with things that are uh, not recorded, but I have this fictitious story in my mind about Joseph and Mary wrestling with how to break the news to Jesus about his divine birth and the fact that who he called Abba, 
Joseph wasn't his real father. And I can imagine them saying, okay, Joseph and Mary talking, we need to tell him because he's old enough to understand. And you can imagine them saying, okay, well, what we'll do after the daily Bible readings are finished, we'll put the other children to bed because Jesus was older than his half-brothers and sisters and then we'll sit him down and we'll just say to him, we just got something important to tell you. How old he was, we don't know because I'm making this story up. But I like to think of the challenges that Joseph and Mary faced as they came to appreciate that God was actually directly speaking to his son and that he had a relationship with God independent of the relationship he had with them. And I can imagine Joseph as the head of the house sitting down and saying, and Jesus, mummy and I have got something important to tell you. You are actually a very special son and I'm not actually your daddy. God is your daddy and I want to tell you about your miraculous birth and Jesus would have said, it's all right, I already know. He's already told me. I know all about it. And I'm sure that as Jesus grew, they would have been keenly aware of the fulfilment of Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 50 in the things that he was aware of and he would be able to communicate to them that made them appreciate that didn't come from us. We didn't tell him that. The only place he could have learnt that was from his father. But that wasn't going to be easy for Mary to understand because she still had quiet ownership of him as her son, as we'll see. So when we come back to the record in Luke and uh, to verse 41, we have them journeying to Jerusalem when Jesus was 12 years of age. And we know that this was... um, his visit to Jerusalem on the occasion of the Passover. Now, what was the Passover? Well, the Passover was one of the feasts of Israel where there was compulsory attendance by all males. And Deuteronomy 16 verse 15 says, All thy males shall appear before Yahweh thy God in the place which he shall choose, and uh, they will appear before Yahweh. Uh, they will not appear before Yahweh empty. Now, When we read in verse 41, now his parents, they went as a family. The law only required the males to go, but they went as a family. And there's a good lesson that comes from this. If you want to teach your children that the truth is our life, include them in your attendance at the meetings. Go as a family. That's the best advice I can give you in raising children. It is tempting to think, one parent goes to the class and the other stays home because I'm not, um, I'm not uh, wanting to give you advice that's not based on some experience. We determined to do that because that's the advice we were given. And I'm not saying that's the only way and I'm not saying that there aren't some circumstances which make that impractical or difficult depending on the children and their age. However, we determine because of the advice that was given to us that our children would accompany us every time we did the daily Bible readings. We took them to every memorial meeting, every lecture, every Bible class. We went as a family from day dot. And they knew that when it was time to do the readings, they sat on a rug with their books until they're old enough to read with us. And there's a culture that Joseph and Mary had because they attended the feasts as a family. 
And there's a good lesson that comes from that in the family and their devotion to the truth as a family. Jesus is 12 years of age, as we know. And so he would be accompanied by younger half-brothers and sisters uh, that we'll refer to in our later studies. But he's 12. We read that in verse 42. When he was 12 years old, he went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And you know the Jews have a custom that... Um, the Jewish boys become a son of the commandment and have their bar mitzvah at the age of 12. And that's uh, the custom of the day. I'm not sure if they still practice that at 12 or 13 now, but uh, in the day, according to Edashim, it was 12. And they went up as, uh, as, as it uh, was re- required after the custom of the feast. And you know from Exodus 13 and verse 13 to 15, if you're taking notes, that it was at the feast of Passover that Exodus records... The son will ask his parents concerning the time to come, saying, what is this all about? And you can imagine Joseph, to the best of his ability, talking to Jesus, as was customary, about the Passover and what it meant. In the best of his ability, with his knowledge about how Yahweh delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and who was the saviour? Who was the deliverer? Why, it was a lamb. The lamb was the saviour of God's people because it saved them from the angel of death by the blood on the doorposts and lintels. And it was the means by which the nation was given freedom and deliverance from bondage to Pharaoh, bondage to the, uh, the, the personage of sin and death that Pharaoh represented. And they were given hope of journeying towards the promised land. And it all happened because a lamb was slain. And it was penned up for four days and inspected to make sure it was without spot. And you can imagine the mind of Jesus, 12 years of age, computing all of this, but knowing much more than this, because what was discussed at the level of a Sunday school story or Bible readings, he engaged in conversation with the elite doctors of the law for three days at a three-day conference at 12. And we know the story about Jesus tarrying in Jerusalem as Mary and Joseph left. And they went a day's journey in verse 44, seeking him amongst their acquaintance and not finding him. They turned back to Jerusalem and they are searching and it took them three days to find him. I don't know if you've ever lost any children. Those of you who are parents, I remember as a child being lost and uh, my parents being frantic and finding me in a police station. Police uh, had picked me up and taken me to the station, didn't know who I was because I spoke Greek, I knew not a word of English, so they couldn't even find out who I was, where I lived. All I was doing apparently was screaming blue murder and in the end my parents, uh, in desperation, thought, well, they'll ring to the police and see if someone's found a child and sure enough... I was in the custody of the police. So there you go. <laughs> Not for any crime committed. I just simply uh, followed uh, a friend who had ridden a bicycle to go somewhere and I thought I'd follow him and then got lost. But you imagine losing the Son of God and Herod had made an attempt on his life and you were entrusted with the most precious child in the history of the world, the Son of God, and you'd lost him, how would you feel as a parent? 
I couldn't begin to imagine how desperate Mary and Joseph were. And you search one day and you don't find him. How would you sleep? If you could sleep, you'd be on your knees in prayer. Second day, no Jesus. And they searched for three days, we read in verse um, 46. It came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Such is the level of his understanding of the scriptures. And Psalm 119 bears that out. I know more than the ancients. And all that heard him, verse 47, were astonished at his understanding and answers. I want to check how I'm going. Okay, so I have got five minutes, I think. So, obviously, his understanding at 12 about his role as the Passover lamb had everyone baffled to the point of astonishment. Because he spoke as though he knew the subject, and he knew the subject because he was the subject. And for three days, no one knows where he slept, no one knows where he ate. But for three days, he was there as the temple was opened and he engaged people older than himself, 80s, 90s, elders who were experts of the law. And he was able to sustain a conversation with them about the Passover and other scriptures for three days. And people were astounded at his understanding and answers. Now, I find that amazing. You would think that he would be the one asking the questions, he was the one giving the answers, his understanding and his answers, because they found that they were the ones that were ignorant and they had to do the asking and he was furnishing them with the answers at 12. It gives us a window into what kind of child he would have been in the house of Joseph and Mary. And of course, in verse 48, when Joseph and Mary saw him, they were amazed. Sorry, and when they saw him, yes, they were amazed. And his mother speaks. And she says, son. Now, the Greek word son there is technon. And those of you who know the word technon, it means a product of parents. Technon is different to the word eos. Eos is son as a rightful a descendant of parents and therefore heir to the parents' possession. Technon is a product of its parents. And she uses that word. You are our son. You are the product of us. Why hast thou dealt with us in this way? Behold, your father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Oh dear, what a mistake to make. Your father? Your father? Was Joseph Jesus' father? But out of exasperation, out of desperation, why would you treat us like this when you're the product of us? Your father and I have sought thee sorrowing. She earned the response because he said to, unto them, Joseph and Mary, <clears throat> why did you need to search to find me? How come you had to make a search? You should have known where I was. And you should have known that I had business of my father's to attend to, my father. See, this was sword thrust number one. 
Mary, remember who my father is. And remember I am his son and I'm on his business and that must take precedence. Even though he was subject to them, as we read in the, in the following verses, he was subject to them except when his father required him to work on his behalf. And he had a job to do. He had to educate these doctors of the law about what they were going to do to him when he got to the age 33. He wanted to make sure they were ready. And he had to educate them about the significance of what they would do so that they didn't make a mistake of going through the process of the real Passover in ignorance of what it was really all about. They failed. Well, not all of them, because some of them actually did know that he was the Passover. And one of those was Nicodemus and Joseph, who were actually part of the Sanhedrin. And they precluded themselves from the Jews' Passover because they made contact with a dead body. And under the law, they were precluded to keep the Passover if they were unclean. And they chose to bury Jesus and preclude themselves from the Jews' Passover so they couldn't keep it because they recognised that Jesus was the Passover lamb. And they wanted to be identified with him. And even though Nicodemus was a disciple, but privately because he was fearful of repercussions from the Jews... He came out in broad daylight and made his allegiance with that man on a cross. Jesus' words were not wasted in all cases, but there was opportunity given for some at least to know that he was the Passover lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Just in conclusion, as we... uh, just conclude based on verse 52 Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man we must maybe um, paint a picture of what it would have been like to have Jesus growing up until he commenced his ministry his presence must have had an amazing effect on regulating speech and actions because everything that was said in his hearing he responded to according to what the scriptures determined should be the moderating influence of people's words and actions, including Joseph's and Mary's. You imagine being around him. He wouldn't be able to get away with anything inappropriate. He would come back and tell you, Mother, you shouldn't speak like that. Father, that's not the right decision. Quoting scripture, he would be an amazing son to raise. You imagine his conversations, never frivolous, never stupid, Always Godward. He was a mature young man. You imagine listening to a prayer that was uttered by this boy. Must have been incredible. What about the way he read the scriptures? We'll see that in the way he read the scriptures in the synagogue at Nazareth. His reading was just unbelievable. Hearing him expound the scriptures. You imagine Joseph doing the readings and Jesus making a few comments in the readings imagine having Jesus in your family what about singing singing praise to the father and singing psalms a lot of them which had personal reference to him his words Isaiah said that he would be able to speak a word in season and how precious is it when people can just say the right thing at the right time do you know what a beautiful thing it is when you're weary and someone says just a small word that just 
totally changes the way you feel. That was Jesus. He knew what to say because he actually knew what people were thinking. And he could give comfort like nobody else could. His timber, as he crafted it in the workshop of Joseph, must have been highly prized because he would have been diligent. All of his work would have been done with absolute precision and with high quality. And he must have been the object of the attention of every faithful, godly woman in his village. And many parents would have eyed him and said, he would be the best son for our daughter. They are maybe some of the realities of his growth summarised in that scripture as he grew in favour with God and man. And this was the man that was going to now commence his ministry and commence his father's business. And Mary was going to find that difficult, but together, mother and son, they would see it through to the end. And we look forward to continuing our studies after lunch. Thank you.